Amen. If you have your Bibles with you today, I'd invite you to take them and turn in them to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. The text for our sermon today is also printed on page 9 there in the bulletin, and you're welcome to follow along there, and there's some, some space left for you to take notes if you would like. Uh, but if you do have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to, to take them and open them, have them at the ready. This year, in, in during the month of December, as we have this time of preparing ourselves to celebrate Christmas, we all know what is coming, and, and we're taking a few weeks to look at the story of Jesus in the book of Matthew, see the way that it's presented for us and what it means to us. Uh, we're we're kind of working a little bit backwards since we were in chapter 2 last week, and this week we're going to go back into chapter 1 to see the, the beginning of the story, not the genealogy, but what starts right after that. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 18 in chapter 1 through the end of the chapter. And let me ask if you're able, would you please join me in standing as we read God's holy word together. This is the word of the Lord in Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word, perfect, inerrant, inspired for us, that we might grow in our wisdom and knowledge, that we might grow in faith, that we might grow in love, that we might grow in joy, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We pray that your spirit will now open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, Would you be our teacher as we come and sit at your feet to hear what you have to say in your word to your people. We pray that you would bless your church and exalt your son Jesus Christ in our eyes, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So the Christmas of 1994 was a particularly memorable one for me and I think for my family as well. That was the time I was a senior in high school that year, it was my family had just moved from Sacramento to Colorado, so everything was, was a little bit new and different for us. My brother was a freshman in college that year, and so he had just come home for the Christmas break. He'd been away that entire semester without coming home, and so he was home. Uh, everything was new and exciting for us. Um, there was a lot going on. Family was together. We were happy. And on Christmas morning, we woke up, and of course, there's all the excitement and happiness and joy of waking up on Christmas morning, except we noticed one thing was a little off, and that was that my brother's eye was swollen shut. 
That doesn't usually happen. Uh, so, so everything was a little thrown off for us. Uh, you know, for the most part, we took it in stride. I remember my mom and I went for a, a walk to pass the time while my dad took my brother to the ER to get it checked out and make sure everything was okay. Ultimately, it wasn't a big deal. He was fine. He just had to wait it out a little bit. And he came home later that morning, and, and we just got on with our Christmas Day plans. It wasn't that big a deal. For the most part, what I remember about growing up is that I, I grew up in a pretty peaceful and stable family. And so Christmas was always pretty stress-free for me, which is one of the reasons that I remember that particular Christmas. Even though it wasn't that bad, I remember it because it was one of the first times that, that we felt like there was some, some chaos entering into the family and that bad things happened on Christmas as well. You know, Christmas is just like the rest of life in some ways. Life goes on. People get into arguments. Bad things still happen. People still get sick. Right? The hospital is still open on Christmas because there's people there who are suffering. And, and the chaos and the crises that we experience in life, they don't stop just because it's the Christmas season. In fact, we often experience it the opposite, don't we? The, the chaos that we experience during Christmas time often feels that much worse because we're always bombarded with these messages that Christmas is a time of happiness and joy and togetherness and peacefulness. And so when life does not conform to those expectations, it feels that much harder for us. Why are things not going the way they ought to be going? Why is life not as wonderful as we feel like it ought to be? I think the older we get, the more we realize that this is a reality, that life goes on, that we experience chaos even amidst Christmas time. We still have the regular crises of life that present themselves the way that they do. Even as Christians, we're not immune from this. We know the reality of sin. We know that it doesn't take any days off during the year. But nevertheless, and we are Christians, and we know that Jesus is the reason we celebrate Christmas, there is a way that Christmas still speaks to us, a word of peace and hope in the midst of the chaos of life. Right? It speaks a word of peace, but here's what is so important for us to remember, that Christmas speaks a word of supernatural peace. The peace that we as Christians look for around Christmas time, it's not just sort of the... You know, I think of it as the Whoville sort of peace, right? Everyone's just happy, everything's good and, and glad, and, and it's all singing and joy. It's deeper than that, right? It's a, it's a Christ-centered peace. There is no peace apart from Christ at Christmas time. It's not of this world. It's not simply the sort of human happiness that we're tempted at times to settle for. It's not simply about avoiding arguments for a few weeks or staying healthy for a little while. It is a peace that can only come through the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Apart from that, there is no peace at Christmas time. But Jesus speaks this word of peace to us. It's a peace that begins by setting us right with God. That's the heart of it. And then it sort of expands out from there in order to encompass the rest of life and ultimately, eventually, the entire world. That's the peace that we need at Christmas time. Right, when I think of, of, of Christmas, I think of this word peace, but we have to focus it on Christ, otherwise it's just an empty, hollow sort of sentiment that, that will accomplish nothing for us. 
right? The peace that we need, the peace that, in fact, Christmas promises us. It's not the, uh, you know, just shallow, earthly peace of getting along for a little while. But it's a deep, profound, lasting, Christ-centered peace where the entire world is eventually put right with God because Christ has taken the condemnation that we deserve. And therefore, we have peace. What I want us to to do is to look at this passage and to see that this is why Jesus has come. This is what Christmas is about. Ultimately, it's about salvation breaking into the midst of our chaos. And as a result, we have peace. And we experience that peace particularly in worship. So salvation, peace, and worship are, are the key words for today. But first, I want us to see that salvation comes as a, an announcement of peace into the midst of chaos. So if, if your life feels more like chaos than peace right now, if you feel like you're in the midst of one of these crises, even though it's Christmas time, uh, you know, take, take comfort because that's exactly how the Christmas story begins in the Bible, isn't it? That's exactly what happens. Look at how this story begins. It, and it, it's introduced in verse 18. I love just even the simple introduction. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. If that was the only verse that we read, and and this was, you know, imagine this is the first time reading through the New Testament at all. You don't know the story. And I said, okay, now the birth of Jesus Christ takes place in this way. I I imagine 0% of us would would fill in the details the way they're actually filled in. This is not what we would expect. But it introduces that. Here's the way the birth of Jesus Christ takes place. And it starts that uh, Mary is betrothed to Joseph. They are betrothed to be married. And we know that that's something like being engaged to be married, right? They're not married yet, but they've been promised to one another. Uh, But it's it's even more than that. Betrothal for them in the first century is even more... Uh, weighty, it's more serious, it's more official than what we think of as engagement. Right? In our culture these days, if two people are engaged to be married and they change their mind, you know, for the most part, you can kind of just undo it and, and call it off. And Sometimes there's a minimum of drama, you know, nothing really has to be terrible, hopefully. But when you're betrothed, it's weightier than that. It, there's actually legal ramifications, which is why the text tells us uh, in verse 19, it says, Joseph is, is getting ready to initiate a divorce. Right? To be betrothed, there were legal requirements, and he actually had to go through legal proceedings in order to call off the upcoming marriage. And he does that because it turns out Mary is already pregnant with a baby, and they're not married yet. And here's the crisis. This is where Christmas begins. It begins with this particular crisis for this family. Right? The very first scene in describing here's how the birth of Jesus came about. The very first scene is one of turmoil, chaos, confusion. In other words, it's, it's kind of the same thing that we're so familiar with. Right? This is not a perfect Norman Rockwell scene kind of family. It's a family that has its own problems. Things don't go the way we want. This is real life. People don't always behave the way that we wish they would and they don't do the things we wish they would do. And we're often left simply wondering, Lord, what is going on? What is going on? So here's the chaos here. We know this is very upsetting to Joseph, right? 
He's found out that Mary is, is pregnant before they're married. And, and the text tells us, Joseph, verse 19, it says, her husband Joseph, being a just man, a just man, we, you could also translate that a righteous man. He's a man who, who knows the Lord, who loves the Lord. Uh, we see here in this passage, he clearly submits to God's authority on the issue of, of sex and marriage. And so he's distraught. He's distraught by this news that his wife is pregnant. Um, but notice this. It's not just that... It says he's just. We typically think of that as, okay, justice means holding the line, doing what is right. But he's also compassionate, isn't he? He's also very kind. <coughs> it says he's unwilling to put Mary to shame. And so he's going to deal with this matter sort of quietly. He says he's going to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want to put her to shame. He doesn't want to you know, cause her uh, to, to be a pariah because of this. He's just. He's kind. He's righteous. And so he's not merely going to do you know, what is right in the eyes of the law, abiding by the strict letter of the law. He's going to do it in a loving way. He cares about his wife, or his soon-to-be wife. So he's kind to her. Here's this chaos. Joseph is a just man. He's a righteous and kind man. What is he going to do? And so, look at the beginning of verse 20. But as he considered these things, that is just such a, a peaceful verse, isn't it? Here's Joseph. He's considering these things. I imagine he's, that, that's got to be an understatement. right? He's not just considering. He's distraught by these things. He's despairing. Right? His plans are falling apart. You know, we can put ourselves in his shoes. He's, he's betrothed to be married. You know, he's got the girl of his dreams here. Uh-oh, she's pregnant. He's considering these things. He's thinking them over. He's probably pretty uh, despairing, distraught because of this. He has to feel the pain of these events. His marriage feels like it's over before it has began. Uh, he's distressed. He's trying to make sense of his life. This is what you do in moments like this, isn't it? Trying to to put the pieces together, trying to figure out what has happened. And it's at that very moment that the angel appears to him with an announcement and comes and speaks words of hope. It says, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream with this word, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Think, you know, let's put ourselves in their shoes. Joseph is distraught. He's obviously despairing. Mary had to be a little bit confused at this point, right? She's, she's got to be wondering what in the world is going on. Where, where, how did this happen? What does it mean? Given all the chaos, given all the confusion that is reigning at this time, doesn't it seem like there is a lot that this angel could have potentially said by way of explanation, by way of just comfort, by way of, like, let me clue you in here on sort of the bigger picture? But here is what he says. And this is important because the angel goes straight to the heart of the matter. Given everything that he could have said, he goes straight to the heart of the matter and he says this, Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. We could read that. We could almost get this idea, right, given the context, that that's maybe not actually what they're really thinking about at the moment. Right? That's not the foremost question in their mind. 
But it is the foremost answer. It's the most necessary answer. It's the most necessary thing that they need to hear because it's absolutely the correct diagnosis for what their problem is, isn't it? And it's absolutely the correct diagnosis of our problem as well. We can throw around all these words that we sometimes use, you know, chaos and crises, uh, brokenness. We talk about the messiness of life. And all those, you know, they're all accurate, aren't they? But they're all also hiding a, a deeper, more fundamental reality that's underneath and that all of those things are caused by sin. The most fundamental problem that everyone faces is our own sin and the sin of others around us. It is sin that gets us into these problems that we suffer from. It's our sin, it's everyone else's sin, it's, it's generational sin, it's these patterns of sin, but it's all the problem of sin. I know that our, our kids sometimes, I, I think you guys have gotten to this catechism question, I think it's is it 18, uh, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Isn't that a great answer? It's great because it's so true, and we, we, we can just nod our heads and say, that's exactly right. The fall, the presence of sin, has brought us into sin, and sin brings us into misery. It brings us into chaos. It creates crises in life that we don't plan, we don't desire to have happen, but, but sin messes things up. And therefore, the most necessary thing for us to be delivered from, if we're going to be rescued from our, our chaos and all the messiness, we must be delivered from sin. That is the ultimate culprit, and that is where we need deliverance. We need someone who can deal with the problem of our sin, and that's what the angel pronounces. That's why he's actually bringing a, a real tangible hope and not just some kind of uh, you know, light, easy solution. He's bringing the, the reality of true peace, that Jesus has not simply come into the world to make incremental improvements here and there to kind of a band-aid solution. He's come to save us from sin and therefore from the consequences of our sin, ultimately. That's why his name is Jesus, right? The great part about this verse uh, 21 is it explains his name. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins, right? Jesus, Greek is, is Jesus, the Hebrew is Yeshua. It means God saves. That's the meaning of the name. God saves. Yeshua, that's the same as Joshua in the Old Testament. Right? And that kind of, that fits, doesn't it? Joshua was raised up at a very chaotic time in the life of Israel. Moses had just died and there they were, still outside the promised land. They'd been wandering for 40 years. Who knows what's going to happen? Right? No doubt they occasionally stopped and considered these things. And God raised up Joshua to deliver them. Right? He's the one who would be their leader and help lead them across the Jordan to take possession of the promised land. Jesus is our Savior. He is the one raised up to lead his people into the promised land. He saves us and makes a way for us to enter the kingdom of God. This is the message of Christmas, right? Jesus came to save us from our sins. That is what Christmas is about. That, that's the message, that's the proclamation, that is the hope, the peace, the joy of Christmas is that Jesus is a savior from sin. Right? That's not somehow peripheral to the real you know, issue of Christmas. That is the central piece of Christmas. 
because sin is our most fundamental problem and Jesus saves us from our sin. That's what Christmas is about. Now, that's verse 21. Right? Jesus came to save his people from their sins, but the implications of that are huge. And I want to simply focus on, on one or two of them, namely peace and its accompaniment, worship. Right? If Jesus has come to save us from sin, the implication of that is peace. But you never get to peace without first Jesus saving us from sin. Right? They go together. Um, <clears throat> and when Jesus saves us from sin, then we may begin to experience the peace that we long for so deeply. Um, Christmas is about peace. We've said that already. It's about deep, fundamental peace that only Christ can bring. It's about peace that begins with the forgiveness of sins. So many of the great Christmas passages speak about peace, don't they? And Isaiah talks about um, Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Right? That's why we talk about peace at Christmas time, is because that is why Jesus has come, is to bring peace. He's the Prince of Peace. The angels in Luke, when they come and they, they announce good tidings to the shepherds, what do they say? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. They can proclaim peace, they can announce peace. Because Jesus has come. The Prince of Peace is born. And therefore they can announce that peace has come. Christmas is all about peace. But again, it's a specific kind of peace. It's not generalized goodwill and happiness. It's a specific peace. That's why the angels in Luke say, peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's a Christ-centered peace. It's the peace of Christ that he established through his death on the cross. The peace of, Christ is, the peace of Christmas is a blood-bought peace, and there is no peace apart from that. Right? Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. See, there is a direct connection between the work of Jesus Christ on the cross by which we are justified and the fact that we now have peace. That's the, the picture that the Bible gives us of, of this ultimate peace that Jesus secures for us at Christmas. It begins in the throne room of God. That is where our peace lies. That we have peace with God. We are reconciled to God. And we're no longer enemies, but through Christ he's made us friends. We're no longer strangers and aliens, but we are now his people. We're no longer orphans, but now sons and daughters of the king. Invited to come, we're part of his family. He brings us into to his, uh, around his table where he feeds us and he cares for us. That's the peace that Christmas establishes for us. But here's the question that, that is on my mind when we talk about this. Why don't we experience that more often than we do? We, we can talk about how we, we have this chaos, but, but Christmas is an announcement of peace. But we always want to ask, well, well what about the chaos? Because it's still here, isn't it? And we don't experience it in our daily lives the way that we wish that we could. 
I think the Bible gives at least two answers. I'm sure that we could talk about many more, but at least two things that explain why we do not always experience the peace that Christ has purchased for us. And I'll give two answers. One, there's sort of the objective reason that we live in the already and the not yet. And then there's the subjective reason that our hearts are prone to wander. So objectively, here's an objective reason why we don't always experience it, because this is, you know, we live in the already and the not yet which is the theologian's term for this reality, that we live in the time between the times. We live in this time where where Jesus has already, in the past, once for all, made payment for our sins. He has purchased the peace that we have. He has ascended to his throne. His kingdom is established. It's it's inaugurated, but it has not yet been finalized. There's, There's things that we look to in the past to say Jesus has already begun this great work, but there's also things that we look to in the future. Right? Jesus has not yet put every enemy under his feet, including the final enemy, which is death. That's yet to be accomplished, which means we live in this strange time, right, where we already experience the blessings of being part of God's people in the kingdom of God, but we don't yet experience all of them. It's a strange time. The victory has been won, but we don't yet enjoy all the blessings of this victory. We know what it is to have peace with God. Right? Through Christ, we have an objective peace, but we don't yet see the, the, the effects of that covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. It hasn't yet spread to every last corner of God's world. We sing that, you know, when we sing joy to the world, we sing that great line that he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. At this point, the curse is found over all the earth. His blessings are currently spreading over all the earth, but they have not yet achieved their final destination. That will be on that great day when Christ comes a second time. So there's an objective reason why we don't always experience the peace that Christ has come to bring. But there's also a subjective reason. And if you have your Bibles out, turn to Psalm 73. There's so many great psalms that are so good for our souls. I think one of the reasons we love the psalms is because they're so honest. And the psalmist often brings uh, the reality of life and their heart before the Lord and simply pours out their cares and their concerns in a very honest and sincere way. And, and the, the psalmist doesn't cover anything up. Right? He, he tells it how it is. And Psalm 73 is one of those. Psalm 73, the first verse begins this way, and it begins, you can hear this, it's somebody who believes in the Lord and who loves God, and he's acknowledging what he knows in his mind to be true, even though he's then going to say, it doesn't feel like that's the reality, right? So he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He knows the theological reality, right? And and we find ourselves in this position so often, don't we? We know the correct answers but we're not feeling the joy of them. Here he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. He goes on and on with this. And, and you hear the, the, the 
the confusion, sort of. He, he knows the correct answer is that God is good to his people. But he looks around and he says, why is it that the wicked so often flourish and have success and the righteous stumble and fall? And he says, my feet are almost slipping when I consider these things because he is admitting how hard it is for him to trust that he is not experiencing the peace that he objectively knows is true, but subjectively he just looks around and feels the chaos. Don't we feel like that so often? I certainly do. I certainly do. We, we know the truth that we confess, but we don't feel it in our lives. We don't feel the comfort. We don't feel the peace. So what do we do in times like those? This psalm gives us such a good answer. If you go down to verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He says, how could I make any sense of the world around me? How could I put these things together? It was wearisome until I did one thing, until I went into the sanctuary of God. See, here is a, a, Asaph is the one who wrote this psalm. He's a man just like us. He's confused. He's, he's considering these things. He doesn't know how to make sense of life. He, he knows what is true, but he also knows his own experience. And he says, I did not know what to do. His heart was prone to wander until he went to church, right? until he went into the sanctuary of God. And worshiping in the sanctuary of God, that very act of being in the presence of God, that very act of, of, of offering and worshiping and acknowledging what is true about God is like a plumb line, right? That, that is, it's a square, it's straight, and we bring our hearts up against it. And, and we see, we see it's not God that has changed, but that we are so often prone to wander. And that very act of coming into the presence of God is what reassures him and what restores him. The, the reason he had not felt the peace that he wanted was because he had been too long away from worship, was it not? The problem wasn't that God had changed or let him down, but that he had spent too much time with his heart being away from the sanctuary of God. And he said, when I went into the sanctuary, then I discerned their end. And now, he, now he's confessing truth again when he says, truly, you set them in slippery places, how you make them fall to ruin. Right? Mary confesses something of that same thing in, in the, her words that we read. He says, surely you, you, uh, you take the, you bring down those from high position and you exalt the lowly, right? No doubt she had seen that same kind of confusion in her world of seeing how come the, the wicked are the ones in the high position. And then she confesses and praises God that he is the one who makes all things right which means the wicked he will bring down and the righteous who have humbled themselves he will exalt. And he's, verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. 
See, now his heart is at peace. For me, it is good to be near God. And where did he get that? His peace was restored not by escapism, right? He didn't just need a vacation. He didn't need to get away and spend some time at the beach for a while. He didn't need to ignore the problems of life and pretend that somehow they were not as bad as they really were. What he needed was to bring his problems into the, into the very presence of God and, and to be filled again with the very reality of who God is and, and the, the truth of his mercy and his grace towards his people, the fact that he is a just and righteous God. That was what had this effect of, of putting his whole mind and heart back in order the way that they ought to be. Right? We could go back to verse 2. Verse 2, he was complaining about the health of the wicked. Right? Presumably his health was failing all this time and the wicked were healthy. And he says, where is the, the justice here? What's going on? But he comes into the presence of God. And then what does he say? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, what hasn't happened is it hasn't necessarily fixed the objective problem, if the problem really is any health in this passage, but it, it has completely reframed it, hasn't it? Now, in the midst of failing health, he's not embittered and pricked in spirit and saying, why, O oh Lord, do the wicked prosper? Now he's saying, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's, now he's saying, for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. See, what has happened as he's come into the presence of God is not that his life has suddenly changed, not that the chaos has, has been all fixed, but it's been completely reframed. It's been given an, an entirely new context by which he thinks about it. And now his heart is not, not flailing and, and chaotic, but his heart is at peace. His heart is at peace. See, for us as Christians, the peace that Christmas brings and that Christmas announces is the peace of being in the presence of God and finding joy in him. Isn't that why Christmas can announce peace to us? It's not the peace of reordered circumstances. It's the peace of a reordered heart, of a reordered relationship with God, of, of being there now in the presence of God and finding that suddenly the troubles of life haven't gone away, but they've been completely reframed and, and, and redescribed. We find the peace of Christmas through worship. That's why it's good for us to be near God. That's why it's good for us to gather every Lord's Day to remember the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ on that first Lord's Day morning, that he who was born in the stable was raised from the dead, that he paid the penalty for our sins that we, being justified by faith, have peace with God. That we now experience God as our Father, that God is our portion, that God is our strength, that God is our peace. Friends, isn't it good to be a Christian? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we delight to come before you. We delight in the truth that you welcome us through Jesus Christ to come into your presence and to sit before you and to praise your name. For us, it is good to be near God. Lord, we pray that now by the power of your spirit, you will take these words and press them on our hearts. May we not walk away and forget 
May we remember and may we praise you and may we find peace and contentment and joy not in ourselves but in Christ and all that he is and all that he has done for us. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.